Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. What do you call the organ that pours enzymes into your intestine to break down your brekkie? Not only that, but the organ also squeezes out hormones to regulate blood sugar. It's a dual function biological machine delivering chemicals into the gut and into the bloodstream. And it is often forgot about though, playing second banana to the rock star organs like the heart and the lungs, probably because it's tucked away deep deep in the tummy, it's actually closer to your back than your front. The organ of which I speak is the pancreas. Today on the show, we will be talking all things pancreatic with two super experts in the organ. First up is Dr. Nicholas Bull. Now, Nick is an Olympic uh, silver medalist in long jump and speaks five languages, including Esperanto. No, that's not true. (laughs) But he is a... (laughs) I love making stuff up. But he is an hepatobiliary fellow with skills in advanced laparoscopy and surgical endoscopy, otherwise known as ERCP. He'll be telling us what all those acronyms and words mean, but basically he's a super smart surgeon um, working on the liver and all the sort of bits and pieces associated, which include the pancreas. Uh, And he works out of the, I think, the Royal Melbourne and Eastern Hospitals. (laughs) EpiPen is nodding. Now, if heart surgeons are the rock stars of the operating theatre, then the hepatobiliary surgeons are the Olympic athletes. Just the sheer physicality of the operations are super hard going, and Nick will enlighten us as to just why that is. Our next guest is Dr. Belinda Lee. And seriously, everybody who whom I mention to, I say Belinda Lee's on the show, they go, oh, she's so amazing. She's so lovely. She's so smart. So I'm really looking forward to having a chat with her. Belinda is a medical oncologist at Melbourne's Peter Mac Hospital. She has a special interest in tumours of the pancreas and is a centenary research fellow at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute. Belinda also heads up the clinical lead of the Pancreatic Cancer Translational Registry, as well as directing clinical trials using tumour DNA to direct treatment. Wow, that's amazing. I hear that there's a lot going on um, in terms of news uh, about the uh, treatment of cancer of the pancreas. There's a lot of new stuff on the horizon, and Belinda is the perfect person to tell us all about it. Now, joining me in the studio will be, who do we have? We have Dr. Kit Kat, <laughs> who's a psychologist and researcher. I'm laughing because I'm trying to do two things at once. As well as Nurse EpiPen, who's a legendary venter of spleen. Do you like that, EpiPen? So, <laughs> so stick with me, Dr. Mel, and the team for the next pancreatic hour of radiotherapy. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Nurse EpiPen, so nice to see you. Oh, and how about the weather? Oh, wasn't it oh, lovely oh, to pull open oh, the yeah. blinds this morning and go sunshine? Oh. I'm out there on my bike. Riding over here, enjoying everything. See, if it was sunny every day, you just wouldn't appreciate it, would you? It's because it's cold, rainy one day. Now it's going to get a pick of sunshine and it's crisp. You think, oh. Get out there. Get out there and do stuff. Did you get out there and do stuff, Kit Kat? I did. Yesterday afternoon I did. I got out there and I went to a beautiful wedding oh. of some friends in Darling Garden. Um, and oh. I did get a little bit red on <gasps> my back because it was just so glorious mm. feeling the sun on my back. But... I did get a skin check the other day, so mm. I am. Well done. I try to be good, but sometimes I might be a little bit bad with my skincare and sun. Mm. Yeah. I've got to say, um, members of my family get their skin checked regularly, and it Excellent. is such a good thing yep. to do. And they put me to shame because I should do it more often. <laughs> now, you have now. You know, when you told me this before the show, Kit Kat, I got so excited oh. for your catch-up, your medical news. Do tell. <laughs> um, well, it's not necessarily medical news, but yeah. it's AI, yeah. which um, I know Mal always is very interesting for Mal, um, and. I guess this may be a little bit psychological as well. Ooh. There could be a bit of a psychological twist. So, um, Epi and Mal, do you use AI? I Not- have for the first time recently and mm. it was extraordinary. 
So just typing a so question So I had in. to give a talk about spleens and I typed in and I thought, oh, it's going to be crappy. But <laughs> it was incredible. It yeah. was was a bit too gushy because mm-hmm. it was a thank you about something about having our service go for 20 years. but And then I felt really guilty that I'd done it and I cheated. Mm. AI guilt. It's a new, phenom- guilt, but, it's a new phenomenon. But the, on um, Q&A last Monday, mm. which is really worth watching, mm. there was a woman that said it was like when you go on Tinder, nobody talked about it. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> yes. So it will be something people will Tinder. slowly, slowly yeah. admit to. Yes. Well, I think we use AI all the time without realising it. Like any type you yeah. type something into Google, it uses AI. Yeah. To yes. Yeah. Figure stuff out. And Siri. Yeah. And Siri. Yeah. So I guess this article came out recently, um, and there's been a bit of a discussion between me and my partner. Mm. Is if you use your manners when speaking to AI and saying oh. please or thank you, and my partner's talked about how sometimes he can get quite frustrated because sometimes people feed it, you know, incorrect information, mm. so then it doesn't fit, um, spit out, spit out. Sorry, very accurate responses, mm. but. There's a lot of research going in how to optimise using AI and what prompts to use. Prompts, yeah. And a research article that I came across um, said or found that the prompt when working out maths problems, um, just take a deep breath and work on this problem step by step, increase the accuracy of AI to figure out maths problems from like 34% to like 80 or more percent. Get out of here. You I tell know. AI to take a deep breath. Yeah, take a deep oh, breath. Oh, you tell AI to take a yeah, deep you breath. Type in, you type in slow down. Yeah. So they did, ver- like, let's work this out step by step. Amazing. And that was, you know, increase the accuracy and then take a deep breath. Let's work this out step by step. Increase the accuracy See, again. It's people. It's Ooh. people behind And I know AI. in psychology we're like, take a deep breath mm. to kind of regulate, mm. kind of bring your prefrontal executive functioning back on. But... Mm. Does AI have a nervous system that needs to be regulated? Well, you know, we're having, I think, next month on the show an AI expert. And there was a trainee in psychiatry who I worked with for a while and then we sort of caught up a couple of weeks ago. And he convinced me that AI um, has feelings, that they're in a similar kind of theme idea as our feelings. took him a while to convince me, but I'm now convinced. (laughs) And that psychotherapy with AI would be as efficient as... Uh, and as meaningful as it would be with a human, which I'm, I was very hesitant to believe, and I'm still kind of thinking about it. But that really proves you oh, proves my no. his point. I just I thought our jobs said. were safe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see you later. No, if, you tra- if, if you treat AI like a human being, it yeah, responds better. Yeah, that is mind blowing. Yeah, pretty oh scary. Does crazy. AI cry? <laughs> That's a great title of a book. Does AI cry? Um, now, talking of crying, EpiPen, you've got the quiz, don't you? I've got the quiz. We should explain it to regular, to, to non-regular listeners. The quiz is basically where two members of this panel are put to shame by a third member who asks us questions. With there are three questions, and um, we buzz. It'll be Kit Kat and myself buzzing for uh, these three pancreatic questions. I think, aren't they? No. Okay. No. You go for it. They're health questions. Health okay. Questions. On okay. the 1st of November, yep. so a few days ago, what wonderful vaccine became free for people over 65 plus a few others? Oh, it's Buzz? Yes. Was it um, uh, shingles? Yeah. What's the name of the vaccine? Uh, herpes zoster? Yeah, the, the name of the vaccine? Uh, Zostavax? Shingrix. Shingrix, of course. Beautiful, beautiful. So that's a very, very, very exciting so vaccine. So all of our listeners over 65, you get Shingrix. Yeah, go and see a GB. Yep. Free. Free. I paid for mine. Because you're under 65. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 One to um, Mel. All right. One to Mel. Cool. Um, where is WHO's head office? Buzz. Geneva? Correct. Oh. Oh. Come on. Okay. It's the first time I've ever Okay. Um, who was Peter McCallum? An Olympic gold medalist in cycling. <laughs> <laughs> Something to do with cancer. <gasps> Very good. So he's so Peter McCallum. Yeah. Uh, lots of qualifications. Was a Scottish-born Australian oncologist wow. and co-founder of the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Wow. So he was a Scottish-born Australian oncologist. Oh, that's good. To so know. you can just find found a centre named after you. 
Yes. Oh, so no, he's, yeah. They would have well, known. No, no, somebody would have named it after yeah, him because no, he was no, a big guy. After him. Yeah. Oh, but he didn't found it. Find it. Found it. He founded it. I founded it. <laughs> yes. What is the past tense? Yes. Found. Found. Yes. Uh, Can I slip in one more? Yeah, slip in okay. one more. Okay. Name one or two medicines that have been directly made from plants. Buzz. Does algae occur? Does a mole like penicillin? That's a plant. Oh, and curare. THC. The... Oh. Yeah, yeah, THC. Um, oh, pen, um, one that does something for your heart. Digoxin. Yep. Oh. Yep. And um, what's the other one? Belladonna? No, oh, I yeah. can't remember. Atropin. Yes. Yeah. Um, There's a few. The others I've got aspirin. Oh, oh aspirin. Wow. Yeah. Salix, which was found from willow bark. Willow bark. Yep. From your cricket bat. Um, a lovely one that we think's pretty good. Cocaine. Uh, also from a plant. There, cocoa plant. plant. Yep. Really? And because wow. I was really keen on trees when yeah. I was looking at this, there's a novel drug purified and developed in that from the Amazon rainforest, SAP, being yeah. studied for treatment of chronic diarrhoea. And the drug name is called Crophilema. Crophilema. Mm-hmm. I'll be Watch. looking at that for the, on the supermarket yeah. shelves. Yeah. Crophilema. <laughs> yeah. That's well, it from me. Thank you so much. I think you won. Oh, I did win. Uh. I'll be lauding this over you, both of you, for the next month. <laughs> This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. Welcome back, everyone. Where I'm really excited, actually, to learn a lot about the pancreas as Mao introduced the show. Um, I also have kind of found that for me, the pancreas seems to be the unsung hero of the dish. And I didn't realise how, or the, maybe the human body might be the better <laughs> the dish. The dish. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess, you know, the brain and the heart and mm. the liver get a lot of pop culture or just kind of in the social consciousness. Mm. And I was like, didn't realise how important the pancreas is. And we've got Dr. Nick Bull here to talk about the pancreas. Um, and I'm not going to attempt... But I think, is the acronym HPB Surgeon? Oh, that's correct. I don't think I can wrap around my mouth around the actual word for that. But yes, Dr. Nick, welcome to the show. Um, we always like to start off with um, asking our guests, what, uh, yeah, how did you get to the place you are or, and what place is that and why? Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, so I'm in, I've been in Melbourne for a couple of years doing my fellowship in HPB surgery, as you say. Uh, but I sort of did my training in general surgery uh, in Newcastle, in New South Wales, and, and then after finishing general surgery, we usually do some sort of subspecialty years, and that's what I've been doing for the last four years. And why the pancreas? Or the, oh, Mal yeah. mentioned the liver as well, so is it a whole bunch of <laughs> yeah. systems? Yeah, organs. All, yeah, organs. Yeah, there. liver, bile duct, gallbladder, pancreas, all kind of get lumped into one, so... And why did you choose to specialise in that? Uh, I really like the surgery. I think it's uh, really interesting and um, complex and sort of uh, intellectually stimulating, which I really like. And, um, yeah, I just sort of fell into it, I think. I sort of had some opportunities and people said that this is probably a good way to go and that sort of, yeah, organically happened, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, mention, speaking of the surgeries, I think when we were preparing for the show, Mal was saying that some surgeons, I think the way you described it, Mal, was up to their shoulders in organs. And then, yeah, is that true? Maybe elbows. Oh, elbows. Yep. Depends how long your arms are, I guess. That's true. <laughs> That's true. So they're quite deep. Yeah, 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 yeah. The pancreas is right down in the back. One of the old surgical catchphrases is that the God put the pancreas in the back so the surgeons wouldn't meddle with it. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's yeah, difficult to get to. And when you find it, and you're obviously going in there purposefully to cut out something, there's a tumor or something. What what does it feel like? What mm. is is it hard to pull out? Is it do you pull it out and then hold it and check it out before you start um, snipping around it? Uh, it's it's quite difficult to see actually. It's sort of usually wrapped around in fat and connective tissue. It sort of has a pinky colour that you can kind of identify that differentiates it from the surrounding fat. But um, yeah, you have to sort of mobilise all the other things that sit in front of it in order to get to it, which is sort of part of the challenge of the operation, I guess. 
So t- take us through that, Nick. Let's just say you want to get to the pancreas. You cut through, obviously, the skin in the front of the tummy, in, on, the, on the tummy. What then comes next after that? To get to the pancreas, what do you have to go past or through? Yeah, so you've got to cut through all the muscle layers, then you get mm. into the into the sort of peritoneal cavity, I guess, and then um, it depends on whether you're taking out the left side of the pancreas or the right side of the pancreas, mm-hmm. but either way, you've sort of got to move around all of the intestinal organs uh, beforehand in order to access it. Mm. And what about bile ducts and things like that? Are they getting in the way? And uh, they, they do. So on, on the right side, when you're doing a Whipple, which is a removal of the pancreas and the duodenum, you sort of take everything out en masse or en bloc, mm-hmm. um, and that's, that includes the bile duct and the duodenum and, and the pancreas all as one sort of specimen. That sounds like a very big operation. Mm, it is. So take, t- take us through a, a Whipple. So um, what we, what, why would you take out that big chunk of like stomach duod- or duodenum and, and pancreas? Uh, so, so it's usually done for cancer, right? Um, and it's it's generally that all those organs are really closely interrelated. It's very difficult to take one of them out on their own. Um, and in, in general, with these sort of cancer operations, you do need to take out the lymph nodes and things like that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that generally involves taking out all of those organs together. Mm. And um, is this true? Uh, in fact, I know it's true. <laughs> But people have CT scans for something else. There might be a funny bowel thing. And then opportunistically, they will find a tumour in a pancreas. Yeah. It happens more and more frequently now, I think, because people are getting more scans for different reasons or a lower threshold to get scanned. And I think that's one of the benefits that we see is that we are picking up more incidental, so asymptomatic pancreatic cancers or lesions that can then be followed up. So let's just say somebody has a pancreatic uh, tumour. <clears throat> How is that usually first present in somebody? Uh, so it depends a lot on where it is. Mm-hmm. So mo- most of the cancers, probably about three quarters, are in the head of the pancreas and that tends to be on the right side, um, which is, which is uh, near, near, often near the bile duct. Mm-hmm. And that will and that will block off the bile duct and present as jaundice. That that would be the most common reason that someone would. Present oh, really? So, as a so it's not pain. It's actual jaundice would be the most one of the most common reasons. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I think as we were discussing the the sort of more and more frequent presentation now is that people are getting these lesions picked up before they cause symptoms. Mm. I feel we've probably skated over this a little bit, and for also my benefit and maybe the listeners as well. It sounds like the pancreas is linked up to lots of different parts mm. of the body. So what does it actually do? What's it actually helpful with? Um, so I think it's it sort of got two sort of broad functions. I think you already mentioned it in the introduction a bit, but this sort of idea of exocrine, which is um, releasing sort of digestive enzymes and chemicals into the, um, into the gut or the intestinal system that helps you break down your food and, uh, and, and things that you eat. Um, and then there's the endocrine, which is sort of release of hormones, and the predominant one is insulin in the bloodstream. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's got multiple different uh, functions. Um, just quickly on insulin, I read, um, I was like, oh, fun facts about the pancreas <laughs> into Google. And one of these, and I thought this was quite fun, <clears throat> is that there are taste buds. Oh, I read that too. Yeah, in the pancreas. <clears throat> apparently. Well, that's what the internet yeah. described no, it yeah. as. But it doesn't send the messages to the brain. Wow. Is it to taste the sugar or something? I'm not sure. Oh. <laughs> yeah. You heard it first on radio. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Yes. I guess it, I guess you yeah, I guess it must because it needs to detect the level of sugar in the blood. Yeah. So it must taste it yeah. in, in in some fashion. Is it when when we think about the pancreas and we look at it in when it's being drawn, it looks like a piece of kale or silver beet. <laughs> so, do you use that analogy? I haven't. I like it. <laughs> he will now. Yeah, <laughs> he's going to be saying to patients. So, I've heard. I've heard. I've heard. Uh, I remember in my anatomy lectures, we used to, you say it was like a cloud. That was one of the things they used to say. Uh, it looks like a cloud. cloud. Upside down Nike tick. It looks like a cloud. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nice. I do like the idea of kale because it's got all those um, little that's what veins I'm thinking. in it. Yeah, the little ducts that go in it. Yeah, that's why I'm yeah. thinking the the taste buds. Uh, yeah. 
Uh, and it's, it, what, what do you call it? As a, is it a sweet bread? Is sweet is that sweet bread when you look at the? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. pancreas. Yeah. Pancreas is sweet bread in mm. the offal that you get. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever seen that? If you go at like, well, when we were in Barcelona and they were selling sweet breads, and you say it's actually a dinkum pancreas. And yes. You're right. It looks like kale. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so it sounds like then the pancreas is involved in a lot of important <clears throat> functions. You mentioned insulin, so I'm assuming diabetes. We've mentioned cancer. What other I guess problems or issues could issues with the pancreas be related <laughs> <a> to psychologist <laughs> yeah. issues. <laughs> yeah, the, I guess the other big one that we see is a problem called pancreatitis, uh, which yes. is a, a um, not a nice problem to have as a patient. Um, it causes lots of pain and and can often lead to sort of lots of long term problems. Um, that would be the most that would be the most common other thing apart from cancer that we deal with. And what's the most common cause of that for pancreatitis? Yeah, so the two common ones are gallbladder stones, right. so stones in the gallbladder that travel down the main bile duct and block off the pancreas, right. or, um, or alcohol is the other one. Mm. And the, I remember from years ago looking after patients with pancreatitis, it's excruciatingly painful. Mm. Yeah. It's not a nice problem. So how do you, do, do you treat that surgically nowadays or is it, what do you do? Uh, generally no, generally um, <clears throat> we just look for stones in the gallbladder and if we think that that's part of the cause of of pancreatitis that generally is an operation to remove the gallbladder but unfortunately there's no good sort of antidote or, mm. or treatment and it's all about avoiding the um, the things that stimulate mm. pancreatitis. Um, you mentioned I guess yeah treatment and that's something we always like to learn about um, but I do also want to slip in we always sometimes find that it's good to ask oh, not good maybe but ask a perhaps a personal question, question to help solve some of our health difficulties but oh, we never do that <laughs> oh, on the show. Man. <laughs> that's the reason i started this show <laughs> but i like my father always need to have a quick ease on me and i read i think that pancreas also releases base is it basic fluid or you know to neutralize the stomach acid so if i regularly need a quick ease does that mean i have an issue with my pancreas I don't think so. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. It's usually to neutralise the gastric acid sort of before you get to the pancreas. It's sort of further downstream. Mm. Ah, so where's the pancreas releasing its stuff? So into the duodenum, which is sort of the first part of the small intestine that's sort of attached right. to the stomach. Okay. So it wouldn't even be, yeah, a few organs away, yeah. it sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> Your pancreas is safe. Kick out, I think. Um, you go oh, ahead. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a tough subject, so pancreatic cancer. Why is it so <clears throat> lethal? Mm. Yeah, I think I think probably two main reasons. One is sort of this idea that it tends to present late, so that people do get symptoms late later on down the track. Um, so often, by the time it's diagnosed, you're already in the situation where you're dealing with metastatic disease or mm. cancer that's already spread to other organs. Um, and and two, I think looking at the progress that's been made in treatment of other organs, we haven't seen a similar pathway in pancreatic cancer. So lots of other cancers have become um, more treatable conditions and I think while there have been improvements in pancreatic cancer, it's not to the same magnitude as those other those other conditions. You know, it just seems to me that it's being diagnosed more and more often. I'm hearing about more and more people with pancreatic cancer and do you reckon that's because it's being detected more a la what to EpiPen was saying because we've got CAT scans, or do you reckon that represents a, a, a true rise in pancreatic cancer? Yeah, I think both. So it's, it is being detected more, but there is also a sort of documented increase in the incidence of pancreatic cancer. And do, do we have reasons for why that might be? I'm not sure. Yeah. I think uh, Belinda might have some ideas, yeah. but yeah, not, not, not something in particular that we've put our finger on at the moment. Mm. So there are a range of pancreatic tumours, so ones that aren't aggressive, so your P-nets and you might want to Which talk one? about... P-nets? What's a P-net? Yeah, so pancreatic neuroendocrine tumour oh, right. is, is an, another rarer form of, of sort of cancer within the pancreas, but I think most of the time when, when people talk about pancreatic cancer, it's what's called pancreatic adenocarcinoma, and that's about 95% of all sort of pancreatic cancers. Right, and adenocarcinoma, just, that just sounds like malignant. Mm. As in, so how does it does it spread locally? Does it spread into your bloodstream? Does it? I mean, you were talking about how it presents often with a a bile duct being blocked, and therefore you get jaundice. 
how else might pancreatic problems or pancreatic cancer present? Yeah, so um, I guess in general when we make the diagnosis, we want to know, first of all, if it's metastatic, so if there's any evidence that it's spread to other organs. Mm -hmm. Um, And and if it hasn't, then we sort of start thinking about whether it's what we call resectable, Mm -hmm. so whether it can be safely removed with surgery. Um, But I I think in, in general there's... You know, a few other vaguer type symptoms that can sometimes present with pancreatic cancer. So some people have new onset diabetes, mm-hmm. people get weight loss, they might get sort of fatty stools or malnutrition type mm-hmm. syndromes that can all sometimes be um, symptoms of pancreatic malignancy. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about before um, possibly removing parts like the left or the right, or could you even remove the whole? And then what are the consequences like? It sounds like you could survive without the pancreas, but what does that mean? What does it look like? Yeah, it, it's not common that we remove all of the pancreas, but it does happen occasionally. But um, I guess one of the really good things about pancreatic surgery now is that the improvements in sort of perioperative care and postoperative care are really have been excellent. So we have obviously better sort of glucose control and, and insulin treatments and Continuous glucose monitoring makes a big difference to some of those patients in terms of their in terms of their um, diabetes control, um, and then sort of we have pancreatic enzyme replacement therapy, which sort of allows people to avoid the malnutrition states that sometimes would happen after major pancreatic surgery. And is that oh sorry is that medication that they're taking or how what's the re- how replacement therapy? Yeah, it's like? just it's tablets or capsules okay. that you take with meals yep. um, or with snacks and it just goes down with the food in your digestive system and oh. helps you to digest your food. Yeah. Pretty amazing how the I mean Dinkum how it like releases these chemicals like lipases and you know the other azes that sort of go to, get into your food and they break it down. I mean it's it's like because otherwise food would just compost, but now it actually like you know actually does something. It's incredible. Sorry, happy. Uh, and what about the islets of Langerhans? The islets of Langerhans. Oh, my favourite. But so, what um, a percent of patients end up with diabetes? So, your if you take out half a pancreas, is that tip you more into the risk of diabetes, or is is there a way to quantify how somebody might? be after a pancreatectomy? Yeah, it all depends. Um, it's, it's sort of hard to predict, but often um, patients will often present with new onset diabetes with a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, and I would say that the operation doesn't often cure that problem, so those people would continue to have diabetes. But um, we do see every once in a while that you know taking out half the pancreas just, just leads to that tipping point where there's not enough of those islet cells to produce insulin and you do develop diabetes. So just to come back to EpiPen's islets of Langerhans, they're the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. Um, that's a throwback to my pathology days from a long time ago. Hey, um, we are going to have to play some sponsorship announcements. Nick, um, you are absolutely uh, – we're, we're, we're welding you to the chair. We're not letting you go. So you're going to hang around. We'll, we'll be back after just a few quick sponsorship announcements because I just want to ask you a few more questions. One is how you got into hepatobiliary surgery. And secondly, um, if you've done any liver transplants. But don't answer that question because we are going to listen to this first. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Nick, I could not resist, and I asked you during those uh, announcements um, if you were going down the transplant pathway, and you said, no, you're not going to do liver transplants, but you do this thing called ERCP. Could you explain what that is to our listeners? Yeah, it's a it's a complicated acronym, but endoscopic retrograde cholangiopancreatography. Of course. Um, but essentially, <laughs> a camera down the throat that goes down and accesses the bile duct and the pancreatic duct, and and that's one of the things in pancreatic cancer when people present with uh, blocked bile duct mm-hmm. um, or they have jaundice, then we usually can access the bile duct and put a stent in as one of the sort of treatment strategies for that problem. Now, you're making it sound very simple. It's actually quite complex. I mean, I've seen an ERCP and you've actually, your camera is not facing forward. It's facing upward, isn't it? Is that? That's right. It's like driving down the street, but looking out, out the window. Not looking forward. At the houses yeah. instead of the road. Yeah. So you've got to guide the little tube, the little telescope going down into somebody's gut 
without seeing forward, looking to the side because that's just the way the camera's designed. And then when it gets to this tiny little little hole called the what's it called the ampulla ovata or something? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then you've got to feed a, a, a catheter. I mean, that's really quite complicated. I mean, did you uh, did you play video games as a kid a lot? <laughs> <laughs> Not as much as I should have. I'd be better at it if I did. <laughs> That could be the excuse of all these kids playing on yeah. Xbox. <laughs> oh, it'd be an ERCP. And when you go in, don't you put a little nick so that the stone can come into the bowel? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah, so you, you let it pass. Yeah, cut, cut. It's called a sphincterotomy where you cut the sphincter at the ampulla ovata, and that opens up the bottom of the bile duct and pancreatic duct. Oh, it's just amazing. It's just and a... that cut will heal, so then it's not just flooding bile into the. Uh, it usually stays open, and the bile just continues oh. to flow out, but. Um, yeah, it's sort of a routine part of the procedure and, and most people who have it done, it doesn't sort of change the way that their digestive system functions. Oh, that is just, just amazing. How often would you do those ERCPs? Uh, I do them about once a week, um, mm. but they're really common. It's quite a common procedure now. Anyone that's got stones in the bile duct or, or a blockage of the bile duct tends to go down that pathway. So mm. people are always looking for emergency operating time to do ERCPs. And similar to um, renal colic... So kidney stones, yeah. you can, or the lithotripsy where they blast them. But you, do you ever do? Do they do that with the releasing um, kidney stones? Gallstones. Gallstones. No kidney. So kidney they blast with sound waves. Yeah, but and they don't ever cut them to release them. Is there anything? They just blast them now. Mm. Yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you. St- no, I know the lithotripsy. Lithotripsy. Oh, maybe in the right. old days. Maybe the old days. Yeah. And what um, we've spoken, I guess, a lot about the procedures, but who are you commonly doing these procedures on? Is there an age bracket, a, a typical person who comes in for those kinds of surgeries? Um, so, so for gallstone disease, which is probably the most common reason, it's sort of all comers. Okay. Um, there's tends to be more common in in women, um, but sort of all ages can get gallstones and get problems. Um, and for the pancreatic cancers, I mean it depends on who it is but generally older older age is a risk factor and define older age (laughs) good question (laughs) can be a widespread but you know diplomatic yeah yeah. (laughs) um yeah so that's sort of that's that group but yeah i think ercp can can be done for a number of different reasons and on a wide range of people Mm. yeah steve jobs is wasn't, he was, he, didn't he have pancreatic cancer? Is that what he had? Yeah. How old, he was in his 60s, wasn't he? Yep. Which yep. is still pretty young. Yep. Yeah, and there was a – I saw also a prominent – someone in the UK also had just been diagnosed with terminal and um, pancreatic cancer, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it sounds like – yeah, I, I'm – I also saw this headline when I was doing some research. Is it a death sentence? Is pancreatic cancer often described that way? I have heard it described that way. Yeah. I think um, certainly the um, prognosis compared to lots of other, other cancers is definitely yeah. poorer. I mean, I, I guess from our point of view, um, we are seeing some incremental improvements in, mm. in, in the prognosis, but it, it is still poor. And particularly when we think about other cancers like mm. breast and prostate and lung and melanoma, which mm. have seen such amazing advances in the last couple mm. of years we haven't necessarily seen the same advances in pancreatic cancer. Well, I think Belinda's going to be talking to that yeah. and some of the new yeah. things on the Should horizon. We... Yeah. Oh, what we're going to do is we're going to play a bit of music. We're going to ask Nick to stay there or actually what EpiPen is doing right now is she's getting out the masking tape and she's she's masking his hands to the arms of the chair so he can't escape. Um, and we're going to play a bit of music and a few sponsorship announcements and then Nick is very graciously actually decided to uh, to stay here with us. And then we'll be speaking with uh, Dr. Belinda Lee, who is a medical oncologist. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. We're going to have a chat with Dr. Belinda Lee. Belinda, thank you for coming in. Um, where do we start? What, what? Tell us about yourself. How did you get into medicine? How did you get into oncology? And where do you work? That probably fill in the whole time that you've got. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I trained in the UK. So I started medicine in Imperial College School of Medicine in London. 
Um, I got into oncology because I felt that it was one area of medicine that you could really make a difference. Um, I was really inspired by some of the senior oncologists at the time. Um, it's a sort of a very exciting area where a lot of new drugs have come through in the last sort of 10 years. And, you know, it's a, it's a difficult area to work in. Um, we have to accept the diagnosis what it is to start with. And then from there you can move forward. So I'm naturally an optimist. I always look on the bright side of things. I think, you know, we can make a difference. I think that's probably why I've chosen to do oncology. Um, it's also an area where you get to know your patients very well. And so I think, you know, I like that personal side of things where you can be with people, follow people through their whole journey. So that's really important to me as well. Um, I trained so most of my life actually in the UK, um, did all my undergraduate and also my oncology training in the UK, worked at Imperial College Hospitals, worked at the Royal Marsden Hospitals, but I think because my husband's Australian, um, we finally made the decision to move to Australia for the family and for the kids, so that's uh-huh. the reason I'm over here now. <laughs> and how long have you been at Peter Mac? Oh, I've been there quite a long time now. Time really flies. I've probably moved to Australia close to 10 years ago now. It seems doesn't seem that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started off at Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, and I've been working there since. I also work at a number of other places. I also work at Northern Hospital, so Northern Health in Epping, and I do research at the Walter and Liza Hall Institute, um, which is across the road from Peter Mac in Parkville as well. Mm-hmm. And you have a particular interest in pancreatic cancers. That's correct. So I think, you know, when I was working in the UK, I worked at the Hammersmith Hospital, which is a centre for hepatobiliary surgery. Um, and I think that sort of partly gave me an interest in pancreatic cancer. I worked with a really inspiring oncologist, um, Professor Harpy Wasan. And his attitude very much was, you know, this is a cancer where there isn't a lot of good treatments. And so we put, we try to put most patients on the clinical trials because, you know, that's the only way we're going to make an improvement. And so I think that kind of, you know, stirred my interest in pancreatic cancer. And then whilst I was working in Australia, we were approached by uh, Jane Hemstrich, who is um, one of the major donors towards my um, fellowship. So I have the Hemstrich Centenary Fellowship at the Water and Lives Hall Institute. And she asked, can we do something specifically for pancreatic cancer? And that's probably started my journey um, doing research in pancreatic cancer. Um, along those lines, we started up um, the Purple Translational Registry in Pancreatic Cancer, and so we started that in 2016. Um, Tell us the acronym for PURPLE. Yeah. So it actually does stand for something. I mean, so firstly, purple, and the purple ribbon is a colour for pancreatic cancer. Mm-hmm. And then purple, we, you know, we used to squeeze these things into acronyms, is about pancreatic cancer, so that's where the P comes from. And then it's understanding routine practice and lifting end results. So we have squeezed it in. (laughs) Well done. Were there big celebrations when the person came up with that? Like, you know, streamers and claps. Like, that's just fantastic. It was very good. We went through a few different acronyms. That that was the winner. That's fantastic. So, So tell us what has progressed in this space of medicine. So, I mean, I think... Um, from a good side of things, you know, the prognosis has improved. It is still, um, you know, not as good as in some of the other cancers that we're seeing huge leaps um, in terms of outcomes. But I think the most recent statistics are showing at least a 12%, in, you know, um, five-year survival rate, which is actually a good increase for us. Um, we are looking at newer treatments. Um, there's a lot of research going on in this space. I think from our perspective of starting the Purple Translational Registry, one of the aims is really to bring together as many centres as possible to start to understand the landscape. So the Purple Translational Registry is now linked to about 48 cancer centres. We work across Australia, we work in Singapore and New Zealand, so we've brought together a lot of centres to work with us. And this collects um, the clinical data to understand how are we managing our patients and how can we improve things, how can we optimise the treatment of pancreatic cancer as it is. Um, But on top of that, it's not just a clinical registry. So we don't just collect clinical data. We actually want to say, how can we translate this into making meaningful improvements for our patients? So we also um, biobank tissue. Um, We also collect blood samples as well, because that's the only way we're going to start to really understand what's happening to our patients and and what's developing inside the pancreas and how how has this come about. Mm -hmm. And what funding have you had to do all of this fantastic work? So as I've mentioned before, I mean, this is really kick-started by the Hemstrich Foundation. I've worked a lot with some of the other foundations, with um, Pankind, Pancare, and we've had a very lot of generous donations from different foundations and philanthropic um, organisations as well. So why is pancreatic cancer so, I guess, lethal? And why is there such a low, I guess, survival rate compared to perhaps other cancers? 
um, maybe it's the funding or is it the type of cancer and the impact it can have? So I think the problem mainly comes from we don't have very many good treatments. You know, So we're still using what we call cytotoxics at old-fashioned chemotherapy. Um, we have got data and good clinical trials that have shown improvements. So we've moved from using single-agent drugs to what we call combination treatments. So in the last 10 years, we're seeing an introduction of um, things like modified fulfurinox has made a big difference to outcomes after surgery in the adjuvant space. Um, and that's a combination of about three different drugs, three main chemotherapy drugs. Um, we also looked at combinations of gemcitabine with abraxane, which also made a difference. Um, most recently, there was a study using a liposomal arenatecan in combination with oxaliplatin. Whoa, 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 slow down. So, <laughs> so liposomal something platinum. Can you just explain what that is? So um, the combination is called Nalarifox now. Um, it's a Nalary is basically... A liposomal arenatecan, so the chemotherapy, which is the arenatecan, um, has sort of an added binding, which then allows it to get into the cells better because it can go through the fat layer of the mm -hmm. cells mm -hmm. and also means that it stays around in the system for longer. So, you know, it, the chemotherapy doesn't get broken down as quickly. So it's more targeted yeah, to the region? Yeah, it gets into it a little bit better. And yeah. so um, that data has shown some improvements <clears throat> with a combination of um, um, nanorefox compared to our current gemcitabine and abraxane as well in the stage four advanced setting. So you're using this broad range of uh, fairly powerful um, uh, chemotherapy agents. That must put the body under a, a fair amount of stress. Like the side effects would be the, the typical side effects from chemotherapy. So it can be quite grueling for patients, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think that's partly why, you know, when we choose our chemotherapies, we have to look at each individual patient yeah. to say, you know, look at age, um, mm -hmm. other medical conditions that mm -hmm. they might have, whether they're going to be able to tolerate the treatments. Um, and then we have discussions with patients about, you know, which one they, we think is going to best suit them and they can be able to tolerate. And we will adjust it for each patient individually as they go through their journey. Belinda, I, I remember... Maybe it was a, a couple of months ago, hearing it was a medical podcast and it was about uh, immunotherapy for pancreatic cancer. And uh, I mean, so I couldn't get the reference, but it was so mind blowingly positive. It, and I just, you know, I, my jaw dropped. Can you talk a bit to that? This is an American trial, I think it was. So there was recently a very exciting um, report from mm. a study that looked at what we call. Um, mRNA vaccines mm -hmm. in pancreatic cancer. And so in this study, it was a small study. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it started off with 34 patients enrolled, but ended up with I think only 16 of the patients could get through all the three different aspects or agents in this study, um, where they used a vaccine that was created and individualized for each patient. So all these patients had had surgery, they had their pancreas removed, and then they used the pancreas tissue from the surgery to understand what the mutational changes were in the pancreas for that particular patient. And so they developed a vaccine against about 20 different oikor new epitopes, um, new antigens against that mutation for that particular patient. So we might just deconstruct that a bit because it is, it, I mean, it's just so mind-blowing. Yeah. It is the future now. So... They take out the pa the pancreatic yeah. tumor. Mm -hmm. They look at the they look at the DNA of the pancreatic tumor. That's they right. then make a vaccine, yeah. like a like personalized va vaccine, for personalized that particular vaccine. Person. That's correct. And like, what does that vaccine then do to the body? So the idea is that vaccine will stimulate that person's immune system to create what we call T cells, mm -hmm. which go off and look for cancer and fight the cancer. Um, so it's personalised cancer therapy, so it's specific to your, to the patient's particular type of cancer. That's correct, yeah. That's, I mean, that's just mind-blowing. It's that's, pretty amazing, yes, it is, yeah. And I, I, what I remember hearing as I was driving along was that they, the, the study was done in the States, but they had to make the, the vaccine in, was it uh, Germany or, or, or Switzerland or something? And so they're flying DNA across... You know, and they're trying to get it back in time. And it, it's just quite my... I guess my, my question is leading to, do you see this as the direction for, for cancer treatment more generally, but especially for, for, for pancreas? 
I think that it is one of the directions that we're looking at. I don't think it's the only direction. Mm-hmm. I think we would explore all potential options. There's other mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. exciting new um, therapies coming through as well. But I think this is definitely very promising. And I think that, you know, they would definitely want to start looking at this, um, particularly in Australia and mm-hmm. other countries as well. Um, part of the difficulty will be, as you described, um, the timing mm-hmm. and the ability to create those vaccines, which would probably have to be created locally. Mm-hmm. I would have thought I think it's not practical to be flying these things back and forth. Um, yeah. um, Nick, question for you. <clears throat> How do you tell a patient that they've got a pancreatic cancer? Yeah, it sometimes can be a really difficult conversation because of the things that we mentioned before. Um, I, I think the, I guess the positives that we focus on now is that probably the expectations in terms of the sort of perioperative care and, and the sort of operative outcomes of a Whipple's being, you know, a month in hospital and lots of drain tubes and all that kind of thing coming out. We're really trying to make advances forward in getting people out of out of bed sooner, you know, um, improving post-operative pain outcomes, Im- improving the sort of time to discharge, all that kind of thing is, is much better than it used to be. So it, it's a Whipple's now is not the same as a Whipple's was maybe 15 or 20 years ago, which often people have had experience with. So I think it's what you're talking about with Belinda, that there are, you know, it's not all doom and gloom, that there are some possibilities and advances and, um, yes, yeah, and plugging in patients to oncologists with special interests and... I think so. I mean, I think, uh, I guess in Australia we have really good pancreatic surgery outcomes when compared to the rest of the world. Um, and I, I think sort of... Th- Everybody who does pancreatic surgery tends to be really well trained and, and it's all done in, in big specialised centres. Mm-hmm. Um, and we certainly know that surgery offers the best chance for good long-term results and we're getting more people to surgery with better chemo regimes and, mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of better perioperative care and operative techniques. So there are some positives there, I think. Mm-hmm. Belinda, you tantalisingly mentioned there are some new exciting hopes on the horizon for cancer treatment more generally. Can you tell us a bit about those? So I guess we could talk about the dynamic pancreas clinical trial that we've been running and we work Mm. um, across a number of the hospitals in Australia on that. And this is a collaboration with the Australian hospitals and the John Hopkins University in the US where we look at something called circulating tumor DNA. And Mm -hmm. so this is looking for what we call minimal residual disease after surgery, so after curative intense surgery, how can we change outcomes to improve mm-hmm. and reduce that risk of recurrent mm-hmm. cancer? Um, and so we're actually presenting some of this data um, next in the next couple of weeks at the Australian GI Trials Group Conference out in um, Christchurch. Mm-hmm. So I'll make a plug for them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so we've got some very exciting preliminary data. And I think, you know, I can probably just tantalise you and mm-hmm. say that, you know, we have got preliminary data that shows that, you know, it is possible to change those outcomes um, that we can show that patients, even when we can identify this minimal residual circulating tumor DNA in the bloodstream um, with a change in alteration in your chemotherapy, we can reduce that risk. So we have actually um, gotten a small, a small number of patients. We've shown that it's possible. So the idea being, um, if I can just sort of picture this, it's, it's sometimes it's very hard to detect if a cancer comes back because it might not be big enough to show on a scan but it will be releasing its bits and DNA into the bloodstream. Now there are tests sensitive enough to pick up those tiny little bits of DNA um, so you can pick up if the cancer occurs before standard tests and then you're going to alter um, the treatment of the patient based on that actual floating DNA. That's correct, yeah. That was the aim of the study. Uh, and and the p- tantalising preliminary data, you heard it first year on radiotherapy, is that, that you, you will potentially be able to change patient outcomes, which is the whole idea of research. That's right. So we have a, a still a small cohort of patients that we've mm. done this in, but we can show the difference between the patients where um, the ctDNA did not change Mm-hmm. And, you know, the outcome didn't change. And mm-hmm. those that where we changed the chemotherapy regimen, yeah, it actually made a difference. Can, can I mean, just more generally, um, this is going to be a really dumb question, but so I apologise ahead of time. Why can't you... People are always looking for tumour markers um, 
can you not do this for other tumours as well, like for, uh, say, breast cancer or ovarian cancer or prostate cancer? Can you not look for tumour DNA there as well? There are studies that look at that. So our group has published, um, along with John Hopkins, on colorectal. So we do a lot of work with um, Professor Peter Gibbs and Professor Jeannie T. Yeah, yeah. And we have published in the colorectal setting how we can change um, chemotherapy regimens based on the ctDNA results. Can you use it as a screening test as well, like for colorectal cancer? Um, there is potential for that, and there mm. are um, groups that are commercialising panels to start looking at screening. I think it's a little bit more complicated than screening. Yeah. You know, it always comes down to the question of how many patients you have to screen. Like to false positives, Correct. false negatives, yeah. 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 All, those, all those kind of things. I mean, the thing that's just blowing my mind is the immunotherapy. Sorry to keep harping on this, especially with the... Was it uh, rectal cancer was it in, from Kentucky two years ago where they had this amazing, I think it was rectal cancer, where they had this amazing response rate um, using immunotherapy uh, for their cancers. And then I heard about it with pancreatic cancers. Are you using immunotherapy? I mean, we use it for melanoma. What other cancers are we using immunotherapy for? So I think immunotherapy is really creeping into yeah. nearly the treatment of most solid cancers. There's more question of which cancer we're not using yeah, for, yeah. and we're trying in all of them, really. Um, but we see the biggest results you know, in your melanomas and your lung cancers where it's really turned the field around completely. So, it's a very so lung cancers as well? Oh, yes. sorry, I didn't realise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very exciting field. Yeah. I guess the question is, you know, why hasn't pancreas cancer so far responded mm. as well? I think mm. there's still only about a 5% if you only use immunotherapy by itself. Uh, Right. We okay. have studies which have then combined it with chemotherapy and shown that, yes, we can improve outcomes when we start combining it with chemotherapy, but these are still in the trial setting. Yeah. So we still need to find the optimum way of doing this um, and, and how can we better improve it and why can't we turn things around. Um, I think going back to that original study you asked me about, yeah. you know, with the vaccines, yeah. and they were showing in that study that they had like 50% of the patients who were responders were giving the vaccine really changed that immune system so that they could have a longer-term response. But also bearing in mind in that study, you know, it was it was a vaccine plus immunotherapy plus chemotherapy. So yeah. they did have three different aspects three different of that treatment. I mean, it really is quite incredible. I, I know EpiPen is... No, no, no. Where can people go to for support if they've been listening to this show and somebody's got a pancreatic cancer? um, The Pan Care Group, which you can look up on the Peter McCallum um, website, and we're going to offer anything else. So the Walter and Lyle Institute do WeHi. We also have a lot of information about pancreatic cancer and about the work that we're doing as well. That's great. And you can tell that Belinda's a fantastic guest because she's looking at the clock knowing how short to make her answer, which is fantastic. (laughs) Thank you so much, (laughs) Belinda, for coming and talking with us. Well, I mean, we could spend hours talking with you about what's happening in the oncological field. It's It's been great having you. And also, Nick, as well, thank you so much. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.